Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. The Corporate Transparency Act is legislation that's going to touch all high net worth clients in 2024. This is like KYC on steroids, and investors need to be aware of it. The financial reporting system currently makes it cumbersome for regulators and law enforcement to track the asset ownership and cash flows. Lessons learned from the Panama Papers and Pandora Paper disclosures signaled the need for a change. Congress passed the CTLA legislation in 2022 to combat money laundering, tax evasion, and other illegalities. After public input, final rules were recently promulgated. There are significant reporting responsibilities and criminal and financial penalties for noncompliance. The impact of these initiatives takes hold in 2024, and it's becoming a point of emphasis for the legal, accounting, and financial services communities. It's going to be a significant part of estate planning for high net worth clients going forward. With the expected avalanche of estate planning in line with 2026, clients are in for a surprise in the standard procedures around usual techniques that have been in place. The concept of putting it in an LLC or just setting up a trust is about to become more expensive, complicated, and time-consuming, particularly in dealing with the law firms and especially financial institutions. Stephen List is a partner at Dungy and Doherty and is on the forefront of this legislation and its impact on clients. We're going to talk about the scope of the CTA, its impact, and why it's important for high net worth clients to start early and get ahead of these requirements when the planning avalanche comes. Welcome aboard, Stephen. Thanks, Fraser. It's great to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on. I heard your presentation on this topic a couple months ago, and it really got me thinking about the intersection of a lot of timelines around estate planning and what I think is going to be kind of a big deal administratively for a lot of the gizmos that we suggest to clients from a structuring standpoint. So let's start at the beginning here. What is the Corporate Transparency Act and what was it trying to deal with? Sure. So the Corporate Transparency Act is an attempt to allow security, national intelligence, law enforcement people and, and regulators to know who owns all the millions of entities that are formed in the United States. Right now, nobody knows who owns most of the corporations, LLCs, partnerships in this country, which kind of puts us at odds with what's been going on for the better part of a decade in the rest of the world. So fundamentally, this is anti-money laundering, anti-terrorism, anti-crime legislation, but it's approaching it by just trying to figure out who owns these things, and then regulators and law enforcement can, can go from there. So we get these registries of corporations and LLCs and people associated with it. What exactly does that require? To get our arms around what people have to think about complying with, how do you think about that? Well, one important thing to know is this is not a public registry because people do worry about that and a lot of the other places in the world it is. But here what's going to happen is if you're a reporting company, defined term, so if you're a reporting company, you have to disclose certain information about yourself, your beneficial owners. Beneficial owners come in two flavors. They're either really officers and people that control day-to-day -day operations of the company or 25% owners, and also company applicants, which are people that helps to form the entity. And you're going to disclose that information by doing an electronic filing with FinCEN, which is part of the Treasury Department. 
And what you're disclosing is pretty minimal for the beneficial owners or the company applicants. You're disclosing their name and birthday, so we know which Stephen lists on planet Earth we're talking about. You're providing an address. So beneficial owners have to provide a residential address. Company applicants, it can be a business address. And then some kind of identification number, a driver's license, a passport, and a copy of the document where that came from. And that's it. So really just some basic information so that people that have access to this information can understand who owns the relevant reporting company. But it's all going to be done online. So one thing I know is that there's the possibility of getting a separate number. The conspiracy theorist in me says, oh, you know, it's great. I supply all of this information. The government sometimes is a little loose with it. There may be a way to sort of get a different number so that you're not necessarily putting your passport information on everything. Yeah. And that's referred to as a FinCEN identifier. And I think that that's going to be one of the most important things that come out of this. As soon as it becomes possible to apply and get a FinCEN identifier number, I'm going to. Right. And why is that? Well, that's because I help form a lot of entities every year. And I don't want to have to give a copy of my driver's license or passport out every single time I'm a company applicant, every single time I send this information in. So the FinCEN identifier number, you provide that beneficial owner information one time to FinCEN and they give you an identifier number. And then that way, if I'm a company applicant, I just have to give my FinCEN identifier number, and that's all that's needed to register. If I'm an investor in a private company, or if I form an LLC for myself because I buy a vacation home, which sounds like a lovely idea, and I want to own it through that LLC, I'll just use my FinCEN identifier number to report as the beneficial owner of that LLC. So it's going to make my life administratively a lot easier. So I think most lawyers and anyone that that would otherwise have to report on more than one occasion... I think it's going to become a standard practice to get a FinCEN identifier. That'd be a little bit like getting TSA pre or something like that so that you can get through security a little bit faster. Yeah. And by the way, you make a good point about how's this information going to be secured. And, and that is not my technical expertise. But needless to say, the government knows that they're aggregating all this data and sticking it in one place, right? It then becomes the holy grail for hackers to get into it because not only could they possibly get passport numbers and driver's license numbers and date of births for all these people, but they would then know who owns all of these entities. Obviously, it depends on what they get access to and how deep they get in. So certainly this is being marked as information needs to be secured at the highest levels and with the highest level of security that the government knows how to do. I don't think you can really ask them to do any more than that. Could there be a security breach one day? Sure. Will it be because people didn't take this seriously? No, that's not going to be why there's a security breach one day. So the information at the FinCEN level, I suspect it's going to be shared with the taxing authorities, maybe anti-terrorist agencies, et cetera. How did the legislation and the rules try to balance the ability to share and, and root out evildoers and at the same time make sure that it's not improperly used either by government workers or otherwise shared inappropriately? Sure. So the Department of Treasury, when they're doing tax administration, they will have access to this information so they can quickly put together structures and see who owns what. Beyond that, in order to access this, you need to be either, you can be a federal agency that's involved with national security, intelligence, or law enforcement. And the information that you're seeking has to be used in furtherance of those activities. 
right? So national security, intelligence, or law enforcement. It is possible for state, local, or tribal authorities to get this information, but they, they require court approval to get at it. It is possible for foreign governments to get this information, but a federal agency has to request the information on their behalf. And financial institutions will be able to access it as part of their know your customer anti-money laundering activities, but only with the consent of the beneficial of the company that reported the information. So you can't just go in willy-nilly and, and try to get it. There's a whole separate reg project on security protocols and what different agencies are going to have to have in place in order for them to access this information in terms of who can access it, for what purposes, tracking who accessed exactly what information. So if there is ever a misuse, they'll be able to, or they'll have the best chance they can have to get back at that information. Because like I said before, this is not available to the public, but it is there. And you know, you don't want some person who happens to work at a government agency who has a former spouse that they're trying to find to use this information to do that or any other nefarious purpose. And there are criminal consequences for government actors who misuse this information. It's punishable by up to five years in prison. And if it's part of a larger scheme, so if they're using this information for something that's criminal on top of improperly accessing the information, they can go to jail for up to 10 years. So on paper, it's exactly what you would want if you're trying to balance the legitimate government interest in this information with people's privacy. Now, time will tell if attorney generals are actually interested in pursuing this sort of thing, or if it gets swept under the rug, or if they investigate themselves and find out that they did nothing wrong. As a legislature, all the Congress could do is make the statute the way it should be. And I think they did a very good job of it. How will it play out in real life? Watch this space and we'll, we'll find out together. Well, and ultimately, it'll be the worst fact pattern of all time that tests the limits of the statute and the regulations. And somebody will get cranky that we didn't foresee it. And you can only do what you can do with the data you have at the time. Probably dramatic foreshadowing as to how people are expected to comply with this. But the interrelationship between the federal and the states, as it relates to trusts and family offices and so on, who have been sold the idea of secrecy by registering with states. That to me sounds like it's kind of thrown out the window if you have to report sort of corporate and beneficial owners, et cetera, to FinCEN in addition to your reporting requirements at the state level. Does that sound accurate or am I overreaching? No, I mean, if, well, if someone has been sold secrecy, then yeah, they're probably going to be unhappy about this, but that's probably good. If someone has been sold privacy and told that these structures will keep their affairs private, nothing's going to change. So again, if you have an LLC that owns your vacation because you don't want people to know that it's you, whether you're a real celebrity or you just think that you're one, this will still work. If you're the modern Walt Disney and you're trying to assemble hundreds of parcels of real estate in order to do some sort of development, your business competitors are not going to be tipped off and find out or they're not supposed to be tipped off and find out that you're amassing this property. You can still do that in a private way because this is only supposed to be available to people that are doing law enforcement. I mean, I think the way that this information is, at least the way it's envisioned that this is being used, is that there is some reason to look either at what does this person own or who owns this entity, 
right? So one example that I've given is, let's say that you're doing law enforcement and you think that there's money laundering and you think there's money laundering going through some sort of business that has a lot of cash, laundromats, pizzerias, you know, your classic things that even in the modern day, maybe there's more cash going through them than most other businesses. And so you're, you're doing law enforcement and you know that this person owns this pizzeria, this laundromat, whatever it is. So you could use this data to say, well, what else do they own? And it turns out that they own 27 pizzerias all in that area. Now, that is suspicious, right? Because they don't have a common name. They're not branding together. Why would you own 27 pizzerias, but you don't pool your branding and your marketing and all that stuff? So they could come top down, or they could just think that this business, turns out, is involved in some sort of criminal enterprise, and they want to know well, who owns it. They can work their way through multiple layers of ownership to find the true owners. I also mentioned before company applicants, people that form these entities, like me as an attorney, will be registered and connected to this entity. So if they keep coming up with LLCs formed by Stephen Liss, I might get a knock on my door and then say, Steve, either you are really bad at vetting your clients or we want to know where are you meeting these people because we keep finding entities that you formed involved in criminal enterprises. That's interesting information. And it's legitimate for law enforcement to want to have access to it. And right now, they really just can't. They just can't work their way through a structure in any sort of a reasonable time frame to pursue their legitimate regulatory, any money laundering, anti-terrorist, anti-crime investigations. And this just goes back to your comment that this isn't a public registry. You're not going to be able to get on LexisNexis and get all of this stuff. This is supposed to be sequestered at FinCEN and have a process around the permeation of this information. Correct. This is not a stalker's best friend. <laughs> okay, so let's dive in here a little bit. I'm sure there's some listeners out there that are, you know, they sort of are thinking about their fact pattern and what are we thinking about in terms of what is required for compliance? So Let's start at the top. What does the Corporate Transparency Act require? How do you break that down so that it's digestible to your clients? Yeah. So in one sentence, the Corporate Transparency Act says a reporting company has to disclose information about itself, a company applicant, and its beneficial owners to FinCEN. Right? So that's it. In one sentence, that's what it is. Reporting company, what the heck is that? Disclosing information about itself, company applicant, what's a company applicant? And beneficial owners. What's a beneficial owner? So those are sort of your key terms and your key concepts. The simplest one is probably reporting company. So a reporting company is any entity, so a corporation, LLC, or similar entity, that's the term used in the code and the reg, similar entity that's created by filing a document with the Secretary of State or a similar office, or it's formed under the laws of a foreign company, a foreign country, I should say, a foreign country, and it registers to do business in the US. So those are the two ways you become a reporting company. You only come into legal existence through a filing or your foreign thing, and you register to do business in the United States. So LPs, LLPs, business trusts or statutory trusts, anything that requires a filing secretary of state, welcome to being a reporting company, that's you. Interestingly, general partnerships are not reporting companies. Trusts, like conventional trusts, are not reporting companies because they don't have a filing. And then the code gives us 23 exceptions ah. because we have to have exceptions. <laughs> of course. And if you can have a couple exceptions, why not have 23? Yeah, the more the merrier. It's a good number. It's like very Michael Jordan, so it makes it easy to remember. 
So almost all the exceptions are creatures that are already doing significant reporting to some government agency to the point that it would be very strange for them to be involved in bad activities, right? If you're publicly traded, if you're a bank or a credit union, if you're a broker dealer, if you're a securities exchange, an insurance company, a public utility, an accounting firm that deals with Sarbanes-Oxley matters, all of those are examples of things that are not reporting companies And since they're not reporting companies, they don't have to disclose any of this information. I think the ones that as estate planners or just that as attorneys in general that we might run into that may be a little bit more interesting, 501c charitable organizations, not just C3s, all 501c charitable organizations, since they do have to file every year with the IRS and since they're not really supposed to have owners anyway, they're exempted. 527 political organizations, since politicians wrote the law. This, of course, doesn't apply to them. Split interest trusts, so charitable lead trust, charitable remainder trusts, doesn't apply to trusts anyway, so I don't know why these were included as an exception, but they are listed as an exception. And then the other one is large operating companies. A large operating company has 20 or more full-time employees, and it has gross receipts of $5 million or more from U.S. sources, and it has a physical presence in the United States. So I think that's one that we will often see. Although sometimes when something's formed initially, it won't be a large operating company. It will have to file. But then maybe once it gets its 20th employee, it can file and say, I don't have to file anymore because I'm now an exempt entity. If you fire that 20th employee and go down to 19, does that pull you back in, we think? Yes, it does. Yeah. If you fire them or if they quit, you're supposed to make a filing saying, oop, I'm not exempt anymore. So here's my information. And then if you hire someone back, you can make another filing saying, I'm exempt again. So don't expect to hear anything from me as long as I have more than 20 employees and and I keep my $5 million of of US source revenue. So you can flip in and out of these categories and you are supposed to file each time you change status. And theoretically, this is going to intersect with family office structures and how people think about that as well, I guess. Yeah. And someone was asking me about that and also private trust companies even for a decent-sized family office, not that many of them have 20 employees and $5 million of revenue. Now, if you have 20 employees, you probably need $5 million of revenue because you've got to pay these people. But I think most family offices will still end up being reporting companies. But again, what you're disclosing is not that big a deal, right? It's fairly innocuous information. What's your name? What's your date of birth? Give me a copy of your passport or driver's license and a mailing address. And it's only for beneficial owners and the company applicant, the people that formed it. So we get into the concept of who a beneficial owner is. What does that look like? Yeah. So beneficial owners come in two flavors. There are people that exercise substantial control and there's 25% owners. In most situations, this is going to be fairly straightforward, but the regulations intentionally use some very fuzzy words so that you will run into some strange fact patterns and you're not exactly sure whether that person needs to be reported or not. So the example of, so let's let's do 25% owners first because it's a little bit more straightforward. So you're a 25% owner, ownership interests are defined broadly, right? And it includes equity, profit sharing agreements, voting trusts, convertible debt options, And ownership interests can be direct or indirect, and they can include a mere understanding or relationship. Now, again, in most situations that we deal with as attorneys, 
there are not mere understandings or relationships. People own something or they don't. But if you're a bad actor, you may have a mere understanding or relationship, right? Your name appears on no documents, but everyone knows it's yours. And if they take it, you're going to hurt them. I mean, those are the kind of people that this is really aimed at, right? I mean, we're, we're all going to get swept up as collateral damage, if you will, just ordinary people with ordinary entities for ordinary reasons. And we have to report, but this is aimed at bad people. So you have to remember that when you look at some of the fuzzy language and you hope that when it comes to enforcing this law, that Finson takes that into account as well, that you know, just a, a mere misunderstanding, a misinterpretation, a missed filing is not going to be something they view as an independent crime, but that this becomes something sort of supplemental that they use. Hey, we, we think you're a bad person anyway. This is an easy one to go after because you missed your Corporate Transparency Act filings, and we can send you to jail for two years on that. So we'll start there and see if we can build a case for the actual bad thing that that you did. But I digress. So 25% owners. So when you're calculating ownership, we assume that all options are exercised. So if you have any options, we assume that you exercise them and you own that stuff. And then if there's both capital and profit interest, because you have some sort of partnership structure, you compare the individual's interest to, and I quote, the total outstanding capital and profit interest of the entity in order to figure out if they have 25% of that. I actually don't know what the total outstanding capital and profit interest of an entity is. I would really like a couple of examples from FinCEN on what they're thinking when they say that. We do have clarity that for corporations, it's the greater of your ownership interest in vote or value. So if you have 25% of the vote, you're a 25% owner. doesn't matter how much value you have. And I think this is where a lot of people with more complicated structures are going to fall into. Because the guidance that we have in the regs, especially for partnerships, is very simplistic, right? They say, there's capital and profit. You compare the interest to the total outstanding capital and profit. I just, I don't quite get that one. So if you have any sort of a sophisticated equity structure, they say, look, if you can't calculate with reasonable certainty whether or not you own 25% of this entity, you look at each class or type of ownership. And if you own more than 25% of any class or any type of ownership, you're a 25% owner and your beneficial ownership information needs to be disclosed. Seems reasonable to me that, again, we're looking for bad actors here and you know that we're not looking for people doing advanced estate planning. You're looking for people who are trying to get off the grid with substantial assets. Yeah. And there's you know a bias towards disclosure. And my overarching advice to people would be when in doubt, disclose, right? Share the name of that person if you're not sure. With regard to trusts, we have some clarity. The regs do say that if a trustee has the authority to dispose of trust assets, that we treat that trustee as owning those trust assets for purpose of figuring out who's going to be reported as a 25% owner. So if I'm the trustee and the trust owns 50% of an LLC and I have the right to sell trust assets, Stephen List, the trustee, has to be disclosed as a beneficial owner, even though I may have no economic ties to that money. I have the right to sell it. I'm the 25% owner. Also, if a beneficiary is the sole income and principal beneficiary, so standard marital Q-tip trust, spouse is going to be disclosed as a 25% owner, assuming that the trust itself owns 25% of a reporting company. If you have a right to demand substantially all the trust assets, so you have a general power of appointment, you're going to be disclosed. And then if you're the grantor of a revocable trust, no surprise there. Um, but if you're the trustee or if you're other people with connections to a trust, you may have to be disclosed under the substantial control prong 
of being a beneficial owner, right? So we talked about 25% ownership, but substantial control is a little bit broader. It includes senior officers of an entity. So that could be the manager of an LLC, president, CFO, general counsel of a company. It can be people with authority to appoint or remove a senior officer. It can be people with the power to appoint or remove a majority of the board of directors or the equivalent, no matter how you're structured. And then there's a catch-all. Those who can direct, determine, or have substantial influence over important decisions made by the reporting company. So if there is a mere understanding that you have substantial influence over important decisions, that could be enough to make you a beneficial owner. As I said, like there's some slippery, squishy words in the regs. They're there on purpose. They're not going to impact most situations, but they could lead to some interesting questions with trusts, right? You know, what about protectors, right? What about someone that's the right to hire and fire trustees? Do they have substantial influence over the trust so that if the trust is a 25% owner, that person with the right to change trustees needs to be disclosed as well? I don't know for sure. My current best thinking is no, but what if they actually do that a lot? What if over a three-year period, they've changed the trustee twice and they're a very active person? They, they like to know what's going on with the investments. They're always poking around, asking questions. Maybe that person does have substantial influence and maybe that person should be disclosed. So there will be some interesting fact patterns to think through. I was also thinking, you know, the person or entity that's in the investment direction role in certain direction trusts especially, you know, let's say half of it's liquid assets and the other half is a building or, you know, a healthcare business or something like that. They're going to be people who have to report on that because they have substantial influence by the definition, it sounds like, even though they may not be doing much. That's the understanding they walked into when they went into the arrangement. And that may creep up as, as a strange little data point in five years or 10 years when something goes wrong with a big asset. As always, these regulatory structures that are not put out, well, these regulatory structures don't fit very well with trusts. You know, Treasury is always very suspicious of trusts because they come in so many forms and they don't want to back themselves into a corner. Again, I think if I was faced with one of these more challenging fact patterns and questions, I would go back to the purpose of this act, right? Who are they trying to learn about? And those are people that are either have significant economic ties to this asset, 25% owners, or people that have substantial control over the entity. So if all that you can do is buy and sell individual stocks and bonds, probably not. But you know, if you're an investment advisor on a directed trust and the trust has an LLC, you have the right to sell that LLC interest. Well, we have guidance that says if the trustee can sell the asset, they're deemed to own it. In that case, it's really the investment advisor or the director of the trust that can sell that entity, yeah, I would probably err on the side of, of disclosing that person. But I, I can't tell you with clarity on that because we don't. No, it's brand new. How can we know? I mean, we can probably go through a ton of different fact patterns here, but let's go back for a second to the company applicant part, because I think that it's easy to just say, oh, it's the lawyer and the different tactician who's in charge of forming these things. Maybe go through a little bit of analysis there, because I think that could be a surprise to some people as far as who is forming these entities and how much they have to disclose. Yeah. A company applicant is anyone who directly files the document that creates 
the domestic reporting company or registers the foreign company to do business in the U.S., and also the individual primarily responsible for directing that filing. And there can be two company applicants, but no more than two. And this is an important change from the proposed regulations. Under the proposed regulations, there was no limit to how many company applicants there could be. Now it's capped at two. So if I would tell my paralegal to form the entity, I'm a company applicant and my paralegal is the company applicant. But if I would tell an associate to form the entity and the associate tells a paralegal and the paralegal files the paperwork, it's me and it's the paralegal. As always, the associate is protected by what we call the crest of ignorance. So the associate in that case would not have to be reported as a company applicant because there can be no more than two. So this is like the anti-Highlander rule. Right? Highlander, there can be only one. Company applicants, there can be only two. Also, this is only going to impact entities formed after January 1, 2024. In the proposed regs, that wasn't true. So if you formed an entity back in 1978, you had to go find out. You were supposed to go get a copy of the passport or driver's license of the paralegal you had in 1978. So that could be filed as a company applicant. It was recognized that was ridiculous and not helpful. So company applicants only will have to disclose if they form an entity after January 1, 2024, whereas that's the start date for reporting for existing reporting companies. Every existing reporting company, so every LLC, corporation, partnership in existence today, during the 2024 calendar year is going to be expected to make a filing and disclose beneficial owners, but not company applicants. So let's zip back to the timing there a little bit. So for a rare burst of logic, the legislature decided in the rules, promulgators said, okay, we don't have to go backward in finding out who the filers are. That's not going to be useful. So anything that happens after, you know, once 24 hits, that's when that part starts. And maybe you can go back again. What is the timing on this? Who needs to file an initial report? And then for those people that are already established, what do they have to do to comply going forward? Yeah, January 1, 2024 is the start date. That's when this all kicks off. After that, for existing reporting companies, you have a year. So you have the calendar year 2024 to file your initial report. And the advice is going to be, get that in, right? Do not wait until the end of the year for a mad dash. You know, if you want to give it, you know, the first 30, 60 days of the year to get some of the bugs worked out of the system and let a sort of standard pattern or, or let your attorney get used to using the system, fine. But you want to get your entities reported and registered just as quick as you can. So that's existing reporting companies. Starting next year, starting in 2024, when we form a new entity, we have 30 days to register it with FinCEN. And then we also have 30 days to report any changes in the beneficial owner information. So in a very typical fact pattern, right, if you would create a new LLC and it's owned by mom and dad, you have 30 days to report that. If they subsequently make some gifting and they transfer those interests to trusts or to children, whatever it might be, once again, you have 30 days from the time that that transfer occurs and the beneficial owners have changed to make a new filing with FinCEN and update that information. You know, I'm thinking about executors who have to deal with estates and so on. Any sense on how that works? Yeah. So for states, the purpose of this is to identify people, like flesh and blood people, not legal entities like estates. So 
the timing for registering new ownership when someone has died and it's being transferred is when that process is complete. The regs are a little fuzzy about does that mean when the, let's say, a state administration process is complete or just when the, you know, let's say you have a partial distribution and you reassign that particular LLC interest. But I think that's the better reading. I think the better practice is going to be as we, in fact, transfer title from the person that died to the new inherited owner, whether that's a person or a trust, whatever it might be, that will be the time for filing your your update. But it's not a person died, I've got 30 days to file a new a new form. It's not going to be quite that draconian. One other part, uh, we should be thinking from a standard practice perspective, if you are using revocable trust planning and you're shifting title from individual to revocable trust, that to me signals that if you own 100% of something, that should be part of your procedure going forward. Yes, yes, but when we look at trusts, if the grantor of a revocable trust has a right to revoke it, the grantor is still considered to be the beneficial owner of that. And we don't care that they used to own it in their own name, but now they own it through a trust. We care who the beneficial owner is, and the beneficial owner has not changed merely because you changed the form of ownership. So that would not require notifying FinCEN of a change, merely funding a rev trust. I guess where I'm thinking is that you may be okay governmentally, but if you're dealing with a financial institution, they may be a stickler on that type of thing. I cannot be held responsible for what financial institutions think. I I worked at two of them. (laughs) I had a wonderful experience at both. It's not even their fault. They're highly regulated and highly monitored, and they have all the incentive in the world to take the most conservative position possible. So I will not be held accountable for what different financial institutions decide or their policies, regardless of legal requirements. So this seems like a pretty logical way to address money laundering and and other bad acts, tax evasion potentially, et cetera. But at the same time, this has some teeth. There's some real penalties for noncompliance. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I will say in general, I do look good in orange, but there's a limit to how much orange I like to wear at any particular moment. And yeah, if you don't do these filings, the civil penalty is up to $500 per day that the violation continues. And the criminal penalty is up to $10,000 and or two years in prison. The phrasing on these things is always interesting. And it does say that it is the reporting company that has the obligation to file. So you can't send a company to jail. But one would think that for, for a lot of these companies, there's going to be someone who's responsible for doing the CTA filing. And I would imagine that that's the person that they're going to be looking at to send to jail. Again, I like to think that where those criminal penalties would come up is when law enforcement, intelligence, anti-terrorism people think that there is bad stuff happening. And this is just something we can get you on in leverage, right? You know, we think you're doing bad things. We found out that you have not been filing your Corporate Transparency Act forms the right way. So that's kind of a, a per se little crime that we can get you for, and it carries two years in jail. And if we can use that to pressure someone to provide more information, we're going to do that. I really hope that people are not being sent to jail because you know, they run a bakery and they, they moved houses and they were supposed to update their form and they changed residential addresses and they didn't. And there's got to be something better for an attorney general to do than send a baker to jail for that. But you know, again, time will tell. 
but yeah, the penalties can be can be significant. So all of which is to say this should be on the radar screens, certainly of attorneys that are advising people dealing with trust and estates, wealth structures, et cetera, accountants, wealth managers, asset managers, that type of thing. As a general matter, what should we be thinking about? What should we be doing now so that we divide responsibilities and duties correctly and also at the same time protect ourselves so that we're complying with the spirit and the and the letter of the law and doing well by our clients? So there's a couple of things you should be doing, and there's one that I'm not sure you have to, but there's a lot of chatter about. First, again, as soon as the website opens up and you can get a FinCEN identifier number, get it. I'm a business owner because I own an equity stake in my law firm. There is no exception for law firms. I form entities, so I'm going to be a company applicant, and God help me, I'm, I'm even a trustee on a couple of things. So I'm going to need to report on a number of places for a number of reasons, I will be getting a FinCEN identifier. And I think most attorneys in our area should. The second, I do think that this is something you should start informing your clients about, just sending out mailings, making them aware that this is coming in January of 2024, and that they should start gathering the information that they're going to need and identifying which entities have to be reported so that they're not caught flat-footed So I think that's important. There's an interesting ethical distinction between former clients and current clients. But the problem with that is most estate planners don't send closing letters or engagement ending letters. We take clients on and we never officially tell them we've completed the work for you. And if you need something else, please let me know and you can hire me again later. So almost all of our clients are still current clients as far as the rules of ethics are concerned. So I think notifying them is important. I think you need to decide how much Corporate Transparency Act work you're going to do. I don't think it's realistic to say you're going to do none, right? If you form an entity for your client, if you're going to send in that form, I think you have to do the initial filing for your clients. If you're transferring entities from the money generation to trusts or to younger generations, I don't think it's realistic from a client service perspective to say you're not going to answer their Corporate Transparency Act questions. You're just going to tell them, here's a website, go figure it out. That's just not going to happen. But you could say, look, there's a level of complexity that I'm not going to get involved with, or I'll do the initial transfers, but I will not be responsible for ongoing reporting. So if somebody gets married and changes their name, you're supposed to notify FinCEN. If someone changes address, you're supposed to notify FinCEN. It is reasonable to say that you're not going to do that work. And then that sort of leads to, do you have to address this in your engagement letter? That's the one that I'm I'm honestly not sure about, right? There are so many statutes on the planet Earth that we do not talk about in our engagement letters. Why is this one special? Why should we be either saying we will or we will not do your Corporate Transparency Act reporting in our engagement letters when we don't say anything about blue sky laws or other SEC filings, or all the other regulatory agencies that might be interested in a particular business. So I'm not convinced that you must talk about this in your engagement letter, but you could if you wanted to. And then the last one is, you know, think about this in terms of operating agreements, assignment documents, reps and warranties. Do you want to say in your operating agreements that owners are required to provide their beneficial ownership information so the entity, the corporation, the LLC, the partnership can fulfill its obligations. And if they don't, then you can withhold distributions. 
or if they don't, you know, there's some sort of financial penalty or other members have a right to purchase their interest from them at cost. You know, is there going to be any stick to go along with this obligation that you're saying they have to provide you and keep you updated on beneficial owner information? I've been thinking about, but I haven't done this yet. I've been thinking about putting in my operating agreements that everyone is required to get a FinCEN identifier number because as the entity, I'm happy to report if there's a change in my ownership or a change in who my manager is. But again, if there's a change in your personal information, your name, your residential address, you get a new driver's license and there's a new number issued, maybe because you moved states or maybe just because in your state, you get a new driver's license number every time you get a new driver's license. I don't want to be responsible for that. So maybe I want to insist that everyone gets a FinCEN identifier number. I think it's worth considering those places as well in the documents that we do prepare on a fairly regular basis. One thing that I'm going to add too is that, and we were talking about this before I hit the record button, is that in the theoretical mad crush of estate planning that's being proffered for the end of 25, 2026, and you and I were saying it's going to be earlier than that with the new election season, that the idea of, quote unquote, just setting up an LLC or involving a financial institution to act as trustee or setting up a bank account for said structure is about to get a little bit more arduous, at least in the short term, as we're all trying to think through best practices on these things. It sounds to me, if I'm reading in between the lines, that a really good idea is to not dawdle on this stuff and to involve your different vendors and advisors as quickly as possible so that you can maybe do the upfront work quickly and with less pressure than some people are going to leave off for themselves later. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my long-winded monologue didn't create anything for you to, to tick away at. <laughs> no, no, you're spot on. You know, we're going to have an election next November. Upcoming elections always produce a lot of clients that are interested in planning because that just becomes a trigger for them of engaging in planning. So, you know, September, October, November, December of next year is going to be busy. No matter what happens in the election, no matter who wins, year ends are always busy for estate planners. Next year is going to be busier. You don't want to have your clients showing up in droves saying, oh, by the way, I just read this article about this corporate act transparency thing. It's called a cat. Is it called cat? Something like that. Hey, can you file this for me? Meanwhile, you're running around like a, like a chicken with your head cut off trying to get everything done in time and not get divorced because you promised your family that you would be on vacation. And you mean it this time. This time you mean it. Do your clients a favor, do yourself a favor, help get the word out. As we move towards the fall this year, this will start appearing in the popular press. Early next year, there'll be more stories about it in the popular press. So I think we all have a responsibility to do our part to make the business community and our clients aware that this is coming and to not let anyone get caught flat-footed. I will say one positive thing that's going to happen from this is I think it is going to force everyone to be a bit more organized in their ownership records, and it will cut out some of the games that people have played over the years of memorializing transfers, You know, because now you're going to be filing stuff, I assume, with penalties of perjury, saying that these are the owners and this is the, the transfer date. So I think that is to the, for the good of the community. And I think that is something positive that's going to come out for all of us from this new corporate transparency act world that we're all going to be living in. 
Well, this is certainly mind-expanding and important, and I'm glad we're getting ahead of it, I think, for the community. In the meantime, how do we find you, Stephen? How do the listeners find you if this starts to raise some issues and, and as people hopefully are anticipating what's going to happen going into 2024? How do listeners find you? Well, first, I, I would say I'm not planning on being a Corporate Transparency Act attorney, but if people are fighting their way through this and they've got questions and they just want to kick around ideas, they can find me at dunkydarty.com, which is a D-U-N-G-E-Y-D-O-U-G-H-E-R-T-Y.com. I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn. So uh, Stephen with a P-H, Liss, L-I-S-S, reach out to me. I'm more than happy to answer any questions that people may have. And I'll have that information in the show notes. Stephen, thanks so much for being on. And I think we're doing clients a real service here, making them aware of something that's going to impact probably everybody that we deal with. Thanks, Fraser. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.